I'm just a guy from the Golden Heart, the wild and vast interior of Alaska. As a young boy, I was raised in a world that married the modern life of televisions and microwave ovens to the rugged and free world of wilderness, wild game, and wood smoke. I was a kid who loved life in the last frontier, but as I got older, I discovered something. I like the good stuff. You know, all those things that make life worth it, that makes all those long days and cold nights bearable. All that stuff that puts a smile on your face and makes that satisfied sound pass through your lips. They're the things that start the most interesting conversations. And after a few years of enjoying these things all by myself, I decided it was high time to share this passion with folks far and wide. To talk and teach and taste wine, food, spirits, beer. To travel all over Alaska and the beautiful Pacific Northwest and visit places and experience things and then share them with you. I'm Michael Dukes, and this is Finer Things. Beer is proof that God loves us and wants us to be happy. Benjamin Franklin This quote is so true and false at the same time. Anyone who's ever enjoyed a good brew could take the above statement as gospel. Unfortunately, it turns out that Franklin, whose original sentiment was written in a letter to his friend Andre Morillet in 1779, actually said, Behold, the rain which descends from heaven upon our vineyards and which incorporates itself with the grapes to be changed into wine, a constant proof that God loves us and loves to see us happy. Now, the fact that Franklin has been widely and repeatedly misquoted doesn't change the fact that there's almost nothing in this world that is more satisfying and delicious than your favorite cold one on a nice hot day. So in this episode of Finer Things, let's talk about our favorite malt beverage, one that is consumed by more people worldwide than any other adult libation. Let's talk about beer. First, some history. Beer is one of the oldest beverages produced by mankind, dating back to at least the 5th millennium B.C., and recorded in the written history of both ancient Egypt and Mesopotamia, from there spreading throughout the world. Due to the fact that almost any cereal containing certain sugars can undergo spontaneous fermentation due to wild yeast in the air, many anthropologists believe that it's possible that beer-like beverages were independently developed throughout the world soon after a tribe or culture had domesticated cereal. Chemical tests of ancient pottery jars reveal that beer was produced as far back as about 7,000 years ago in what is today Iran. That discovery reveals one of the earliest known uses of fermentation and is the earliest evidence of brewing to date. In Mesopotamia, the oldest evidence of beer is believed to be a 6,000-year-old Sumerian tablet depicting people drinking a beverage through reed straws from a communal bowl. Then there's the 3,900-year-old Sumerian poem honoring Ninkazi, the patron goddess of brewing, which contains the oldest surviving beer recipe describing the production of beer from barley via bread. Yes, Ninkazi, just like that brewery in Eugene, Oregon. But beer is not just a Western invention. In China, residue on pottery dating between 5,400 and 4,900 years ago shows beer was brewed using barley and other grains. Some have argued that the invention of beer and bread has been responsible for humanity's ability to develop technology and build civilizations. The earliest chemically confirmed barley beer to date was discovered in Tepe in the central Zagros Mountains of Iran, where fragments of a jug, at least 5,000 years old, 
were found to be coated with beer stone, a byproduct of the brewing process. And beer may have even been one of the first professions to help with the quality of the sexes. In ancient Mesopotamia, clay tablets indicate that the majority of brewers were probably women and that brewing was a fairly well-respected occupation during the time, being the only profession in Mesopotamia which derived social sanction and divine protection from female deities and goddesses, specifically Ninkazi, who covered the production of beer, Cirrus, who was used as a metonymic way to refer to beer, and Siduri, who covered the enjoyment of beer. In point of fact, women brewers dominated alcohol production on every occupied continent until commercialization and industrialization of brewing occurred shortly after the Industrial Revolution. As for the economics of beer, it was so important in ancient times that it was actually used as a form of currency. Approximately 5,000 years ago, in the ancient Sumerian city of Uruk, workers were paid by their employers in the local brew. Beer even helped with the creation of one of the seven wonders of the world. During the building of the Great Pyramids in Giza, Egypt, each worker got a daily ration of four to five liters of beer, which served as both nutrition and refreshment and was crucial to the pyramid's construction. I think that we can all agree that that would never work today. I mean, if you gave me four to five liters of beer, I'd never get any work done. And if you needed another excuse to drink your favorite brew, you can claim it was the doctor's orders. As a part of their health care plan, ancient Nubians used beer as an antibiotic medicine. Now that's a health plan I can like and keep. Fast forward a millennia or two, and we find that beer produced before the Industrial Revolution continued to be made and sold on a domestic scale. Although by the 7th century AD, beer was also being produced and sold by European monasteries. During the Industrial Revolution, the production of beer moved from artisanal manufacture to industrial manufacture, and domestic production ceased to be significant by the end of the 19th century. Some of these changes were good, with the development of hydrometers and thermometers changing the brewing process by allowing the brewer more control of it and greater knowledge of the results. But then we come to the not-so-good aspect of industrialization. Uniformity, sameness, monotony, all good aspects as far as the quality of beer goes, but not so much on the diversity of beer. Because you see, today, the brewing industry is a global business, consisting of several dominant multinational companies and many thousands of smaller producers ranging from brew pubs to regional breweries. More than 133 billion liters, that's 35 billion gallons, are sold per year, producing a total global revenue of just under $300 billion in 2006. It's only really through the resurgence of craft brewing and the revival of regional and location-specific beers that we are finally seeing the best in what beer has to offer. A different taste for everyone. So, beer truly has been so many things to so many people throughout history. Currency, medicine, relaxant, a tool for religious communion, or an expression of regional pride and prowess. In short, beer is amazing. So now beer has come full circle, from single brews and huts and villages to guild halls and monasteries up to giant conglomerate megacorps, and finally, back to the modern-day renaissance of the craft brewing revival. 
In the last few years, I have developed a fascination with the local microbrewery phenomenon and was enjoying a wide variety of beers, ales, porters, lagers, and lambiques from around the world. I was learning more all the time about the process and the difficulties of starting and running your own small production brewery. And I was in awe of the commitment and dedication that these brewers were showing to their communities, their customers, and their craft as they made some of the world's best beer. It's one of the main reasons that I had chosen beer as one of my first topics for finer things. But as you can tell by just this first glimpse into the history of beer, it's a huge topic. And I wanted to see what this craft brewing phenomenon was all about firsthand. So jumping onto Google, I decided to see what we could find right here in our own backyard. As the screen filled with results, I was absolutely blown away. First of all, in the state of Alaska alone, there are more than 45 breweries, with more popping up every couple months. That's 45 different places to visit and people to talk to, 45 different stories and motivations. I could not be more excited about the prospect. First off, I figured it would be best to start someplace I was familiar with. That means heading back to my hometown of Fairbanks, in the interior of Alaska. And since I knew that my first experience of documenting the finer things could be a little bumpy, I reached out to my friend Glenn Brady, who just happens to own Silver Gulch Brewery, the northernmost brewery in North America. While I was there, we got a chance to talk about the start of his brewing experience, all of his beers, his unique beer-themed food, but also about some of the interesting challenges facing you when you're building a brewery on the edge of nowhere in a building that's seen nearly a century of use in the harsh Arctic climate. But above all else, I really wanted to talk to Glenn about how he got started in this crazy business and what drives his passion for beer-making perfection. When we continue in a moment, we'll pick things up with Glenn Brady of Silver Gulch Brewery, whose early work for his dozer-driving grandmother may have changed his life forever. That's up next on Finer Things. Every major industrialized nation has beer. It can't be a real country unless you have a beer and an airline. It helps if you have some kind of football team or some nuclear weapons, but at the very least, you need a beer. Frank Zappa. Glenn Brady is the founder and head brewmaster at Silver Gulch Brewery, the northernmost brewery in North America, located just a few short miles north of Fairbanks in Alaska's interior in what was once the small mining town of Fox. This community lies on the right bank of Fox Creek as it enters Goldstream Creek Valley right at the junction of the Steese and Elliott Highways. Fox was first established as a mining camp in 1905. One of the things that helped this small camp grow was the Tanana Valley Railroad, which was a three-foot, narrow-gauge railroad that operated in the Tanana Valley of Alaska from 1905 to about 1917. A portion of these same tracks later became part of today's Alaska Railroad. As a fledgling community in Alaska's boom-and-bust gold mining industry, Fox sported its own post office operated from 1908 through 1947. Today, most of the small gold mines are gone, and Fox functions as a bedroom community with most residents working in Fairbanks or at Fort Knox Gold Mine to the northeast. As we sat down on a beautiful July day in the outside beer tent at Silver Gulch, Glenn and I got a chance to catch up and talk a little bit about his early years and how he got started. Well, I remember back in the day, Glenn, when you first got started, yeah. did you ever think it would get to be... We just got a chance to take a look. Holy cow. Yeah, it's been, uh, as you noticed, there's that sort of gritty industrial feel of a never-ending construction project. <laughs> and and that's really been kind of the, uh, to answer your question, no, I never thought it would get to be at this point. 
uh, just because it's been, you know, we started off thinking we had a plan that, you know, fit with our capacity. And of course, we outstripped that very quickly. So, and then we anticipate the next few years need and then outstrip that in two or three years. So, but uh, it's been a slow evolution. Um, you know, as you know, we opened uh, back in early 1998. So we're coming up on 18 years now. We're actually coming up on 19, getting close. So, <laughs> and uh, yeah, it's been fascinating to see how it's evolved right it's taken turns that i would have never predicted yeah well and you know and i remember just in that first small things you and i talked and you know aspirations of you know if we could just do this then it'll be good and like you said then you exceeded that and oh if we could just do this then it would be good it's always that carrot just on the end of the stick dangling just a little bit out of reach and here you are business yeah here you are 19 years later built uh you know one of the most successful breweries in the state of Alaska, and of course, a brand that's known, you know, far and wide. And uh, and uh, congratulations! Yeah, thank you. Then we got a chance to talk about his beers. Today, he now has almost a dozen different varieties on tap at any time. But back in the day, he started off with just two, two recipes that started in his garage and slowly made the translation over to the genesis of his commercial success. So the first two beers that came out of the, the, the very first two back-to-back, it was Copper Creek Amber and the Coldfoot Pilsner. So those were the, the two original beers that were loosely patterned off of some homebrew recipes that we had been doing. But, of course, the scale up from a 10-gallon batch to a 750-gallon batch, there's really no good translation. And since we'd been building the brewery, we hadn't, you know, hadn't homebrewed in like a year and a half. So it was just went from nothing to those first two beers and uh, knock on wood you know they they came out close to the way we wanted them we've made little adjustments over time so now that i knew where these first two flagship brews came from it was time to dive in and find out how they tasted after all that's the important part i wanted to know about the different characteristics of each brew and maybe some suggestions for what foods i could be pairing them to eat with so it's begin at the beginning. Yeah, so, begin the beginning. so first we'll try the very first beer we made, which is the Coldfoot Pilsner. So, and I think they've got them laid out in order. Yeah. Cheers. All right. So this is a kind of a more of a German style Pilsner. Mm. We've got these little half pours, so we can get through all of them. <laughs> it is a hot day, but it ain't that hot, right? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and that's, so it's nice and light. Yeah, it's got a light body, a little bit more crisp uh, hop character, and uh, but with uh, noble hops, you get kind of a floral nose to it. And Herbal, almost kind yeah, of. Yeah, that's typical of the type of hops that are all from Central Europe that are used in this beer. And uh, and as far as talking about, ooh, it's so good. I mean, especially in a day like today where it is yeah. nice and warm. That's really a quencher. It's just yes. really crisp at the end. It's my wife's favorite beer, so yeah, it <laughs> was the me. it was the of one. Of course, she used to drink Rainier many many years ago when she <laughs> lived in Juneau. So, well, I'm glad she's worked her way up. Yes. You know, so that's that's good stuff. Um, so, food wise, I mean, this obviously uh, is really crisp on the end, so it's a good cleanser. There's a lot of things you could eat and just yeah, help so wash this down. Generally, the pairings for things like pilsners because they're lighter in body and have that hop bitterness to go along with them. A lot of times, they get paired with salads and vinaigrettes. 
um, which of course you know we're not big you know personally I'll save the salad for later right <laughs> we didn't do a pairing with that but um, generally you know something that's not as super heavy you know you're gonna want to pair lighter beers with kind of lighter more subtle foods generally and then of course the con- converse of that's dark full-bodied beers with something rich, heavy heavier and substantial foods. right so yeah. generally and there's some exceptions but that's a good rule to stick to when yeah i don't see a lot of uh, brew pubs putting up a big salad so vinaigrette you know kind yeah of i mean it's it's you know with healthy conscience and you know the more health conscious eating and uh, which is great and you know for weather dependent days like this you want something lighter so you know, sometimes beer is its own meal. You don't need the food to go with it. Right, so. exactly. So that was uh, that's the so pil- that's the cold foot pilsner. Cold foot pilsner, and that is delicious. So the next in line is the uh, this beer was our actually third beer. It was a, between third and fourth uh, made within a year after we opened. This is called Fairbanks Lager, and it's uh, patterned after a beer I had in. Munich in the beer garden tent during Oktoberfest. So it's got a nice sour on it, and it's just well, it's got a roasted, toasted malt character a little bit. So it's um, less bitter, even though it's darker. Mm-hmm. It's got uh, a little more sweet finish to it. It definitely uh, has malty. Yeah, it so has the, the sweetness and the maltiness, so. and and yeah, sour without the bitterness, which I find pleasing. Again, it, it, again, it's the sour without being bitter, which I like. I mean, yeah, it's kind of like that. Then the malt. There's a faint bit of roast malt to it, and that's like part of that sort of faint toffee character you get. So, and yeah, it's got a, just a beautiful color. I love how it. Uh, yeah, it's kind of a golden hue, yeah. and uh, that's the the beer that when people want a crossover beer, we generally tend to steer them. I mean, people think pale. Right. You know, I'm used to pale. But I don't want a pale lager, and this yeah. is kind of the this, this is the hybrid. It kind of broaches the two. It's yeah, paler in flavor, so to speak, but darker in color. So people confuse the color with body and character which you know if you're drinking american style pale lager that's you know it's all kind of the same thing right so oh that first taste was heavenly to me anyway this seems like a good time to let you know that on finer things i'll do my best to describe the beers wine spirits and food that we talk about on the show but that everything that i describe will be with a bias to my palate something i might find amazing you may only feel as mediocre but let's face it that just gives you more excuses to try something else we talk about we're going to take a quick intermission but when we come back we'll tell the story of old 55 a beer that actually came from one of alaska's earliest breweries in the craft beer revival we'll continue with glenn brady from silver gulch brewery when we return on finer things beer is the best damn drink in the world actor jack nicholson welcome back to finer things we're continuing our discussion with glenn brady who's the founder and head brewmaster at silver gulch brewery we just finished up sampling two of glenn's first beers the fairbanks lager and the coldfoot pilsner Both were excellent, good beers with which to start any journey into the world of craft brewing. Now it's time to taste a few more. Up first, we'll talk about Old 55, a beer that's not truly a Silver Gulch original. This beer actually came from one of Alaska's earliest breweries in the craft beer revival. So this one, we kind of skipped a cog here. So this is the Old 55 Pale Ale. And this used to be, you'll get that nice hop nose, so this used to be the flagship beer of Bird Creek Brewing, which was Anchorage's first uh, craft brewery of the sort of more recent 
you know, it wasn't Anchorage's first brewery, but you know, there there were breweries, and then they went away, and then then it became popular again back in the you know mid to late eighties. Uh, that's when the first breweries got started, Alaskan, and then right. later on. Uh, but Bird Creek was one of those uh, for the first new brewery in Anchorage in many many years, and uh, this was their flagship. So we ended up uh, buying the brands. Um, gosh, I want to say twelve plus years ago and uh and we've been making some of their beers again this was one and, right uh, it's a cool so, favorite so you, so you bought the entire their entire brand selection then yeah we them. bought all the all the beers we didn't buy any of the equipment basically just the brand and the beer names and labels recipes and things like, and stuff that. like that yeah and the recipes have been heavily modified but we <laughs> we tried to stick with the guidelines and what's the and what's the uh, what's the what's the story behind Old Fifty Five? So Old Fifty Five, there's a lot of different takes on it. It's somewhat of a myth slash legend. But um, Ike Kelly, the founder of Bird Creek Brewing, his birthday was fifty five. So in nineteen fifty five. So that's the the general consensus is it was after him and his birth date, so right. birth year, 55. They think that's the theory anyway. Yeah. Nobody's really telling what and the And it's interesting, the original gravity on the beer is 1.055, um, which we measure Plato, but that's in specific gravity, and the uh, IBUs are right around 55, but that's more, I think, circumstance. <laughs> it just happens to just match happens the branding, to work. Right? All of that's, it lines right up. That's so. how it goes. I really like the flavor on this one. So yeah, this is uh, it's just an American style pale ale, kind of a nice session pale ale, not over the top hop bitterness, but balanced out. So yeah, well balanced, and I and I really like hops. I mean, I if it's you know if I get something with an IBU of you know seventy plus, I'm kind of happy, very yeah. hoppy. But this is just that mild, subtle, yeah, really it's, tasty. It's a session beer, and we've always you know personally, I've been. You know, a lot of brewers like to get the bigger, badder, more extreme, in-your-face IPAs, you right. know, just double, triples, imperials, and and that's all fine, but I personally tended to like to make beers that were more balanced that you could drink more than one of. Right, So, right. You know, a beer that you can enjoy, you don't have to really load up on things and, and that tire your palate. We should break in here for a second and talk about some of the terms that Glenn just used. As we go forward with finer things, anytime we talk about beer, there'll be a few acronyms that get thrown around, and you should have a background on what they mean and to interpret how they affect the taste of the beer that we're discussing. First is IBUs, or International Bitterness Units. IBUs are a scale used by brewers and beer-drinking enthusiasts as a gauge of beer's bitterness. What IBUs measure are the parts per million of isohumulone, which is the acid found in hops that gives beer its bitter bite. Though the IBU scale can be used as a general guideline for taste, the lower IBUs corresponding to less bitterness and vice versa, it's important to note that malt and other flavors can mask the taste of bitterness in beer. Therefore, a beer with 20 IBUs and a minimal malt character can have significantly more bitter taste than a beer with 60 IBUs and a powerful malt profile. This has led to some debate amongst the craft community about how useful the IBU scale really is. IBUs aren't always reliable indicators of how beer tastes, depending on the style and ingredients. And the scale itself doesn't account for a variety of factors that affect the actual taste of bitterness in brew. Specific gravity is a scientific term that describes the relative density of the wort compared to water. The wort is the liquid extracted from the mashing process of brewing where sugars are fermented by adding yeast to produce alcohol. 
This helps in many different ways, but mostly the measurement helps in keeping production consistent when producing hundreds of gallons of beer of the same type at different times. There are plenty of other terms that will help describe both the making and consumption of beer, but we'll tell you about them as we go along, and maybe we'll have one whole show dedicated to just the beer-making process itself. If that's something you'd like to see, don't forget to drop me an email letting me know. Michael at FinerThingsRadio.com Okay, educational interlude over. Let's get back to the beer. One of the many beers that I was really looking forward to was Glenn's very first beer, which he mentioned earlier, the Copper Creek Amber. And now that we've had three different beers in front of us, Glenn took the opportunity to talk about some of the food pairings you could try as well. So next one is one of our original flagships. This is Copper Creek Amber. So this is an uh, American-style amber ale. Uh, and you'll notice it looks just very similar in color to the both Fairbanks Lager and Old 55 that we just tried. And you'll also notice that it's all three beers, even though they look the same, are quite different between flavor, each other. Yeah. So in the flavor and aroma. Yeah, you could pick up the wrong one and be like, well, that's definitely Yeah, not you'll, right. you'll be able to tell them apart blindfolded. So that's that's what we want is for each of the beers to be distinct and different. So this one, the old 55 we had tried before is a little more hop forward. This is more what I would call like middle of the road, evenly balanced. Yeah. So you've got malt, sweetness, hop, bitterness, balancing each other out, but neither of them really predominate. Well, it's so. got a lot more malt on the nose than, than yes. the other two. Which is very pleasant when you're when you're getting ready to get into it, and uh, and that sweetness is really predominant, which I like. Yeah, and it's it's um, you know not as sweet as some of the other ambers on the market, but uh, you know again trying to aim for something that uh, you know pairs well with food. And of course, we're we've got some food little munchies to nosh on. Sure, sure. So try this to this is the this tiny bit of the pico. pico, our house made pico. So you can do a little bit of side by side. Um, generally, spicy food pairs with sweeter beers, sweeter things. So sweet and spicy go together, which is kind of a no-brainer, but Ooh. It, and it sort of the sweetness accentuates the spiciness, and the spiciness accentuates the sweetness, so they kind of contrast each other, which makes the, the sum of the parts better than the whole more well, than the whole and first of all the pico is amazing i mean that is really a yeah, good it's a nice fresh fresh balanced pico and um and you're right I'm the not. sweetness of the of the lager just really i mean it just really immediately pop, pops in your mouth the second that you uh, the second you get it there it just immediately pops so it's you know un- unusual pairings that you don't necessarily think of but like thai iced tea and very spicy green curry you know that spice right. and sweet are there's a reason they go together and there's also uh, if you think about a lot of quintessentially mexican beers not corona per se but um, like negro modelo Right. That's a great example. It's actually a German-style lager, very similar to Fairbanks lager in style, and it goes with that me- spicy, spicy Mexican, Mexican food. food right. right, and you know all the spices used accent that sweetness. So, so fun food pairing things. So, we've got one more beer we want to talk about when we return to finer things. But you may want to send the kids out of the room because this one will definitely make the minister's daughter blush right down to her toes. Osculum Infame is up next when we come back for more Finer Things. Most people hate the taste of beer to begin with. It is, however, a prejudice. 
Winston Churchill. Welcome back. I'm Michael Dukes, and this is Finer Things, your chance to learn about all the finer things in life, beer, food, wine, spirits, travel, and more. We've been talking to Glenn Brady of Silver Gulch Brewery, the northernmost brewery in North America, outside of Fairbanks. And before we left you, I said that we had just one more beer to try. Well, I've got good news and bad news. The first is, I lied. We actually have two beers, and that's also the good news. So let's put Osculum and Fame aside for a moment and save that kiss of shame for last, shall we? Alaska has a great history of partnership with the U.S. military. From the Alcan Highway being built to help the war effort during World War II, all the way up to our modern-day Army and Air Force bases, Alaska would have a very hard time getting by without our troops. And the soldiers and airmen love this state so much that Alaska has more veterans per capita than any other state in the nation. Glenn's next beer pays homage to those troops and the annual military maneuvers held in the last frontier. All right, so next is the IPA. This is another one of our newest beers. So for the first, oh gosh, I want to say about 16 years of us being open, we never made an IPA. Uh, actually, we did one single batch of IPA once at maybe year 11 or something. And just because, again, back to the balance thing. Right, and that's and your thing, but face customers it, I, I mean, want IPAs IPA. are hot. Yes. I mean, IPAs right now are everything, like you said, triple, double triples, imperials, yeah. whatever it is, it's always something that's going on. Um, it seems like every week I'm reading about some new IPA that's coming out that, yeah. of course, I want to try and I can't because... Some new mango you know, IPA or yeah. triple this. Oh, I had a grapefruit IPA the In other your day face that, was, that. Yeah. yeah. It's always interesting to see, but... Ooh. So this has um, both the hop aroma that strikes you in the nose. You got like tropical fruit, a little bit of citrus, yeah. and then the um, bitterness. There's, there's a significant amount of sweetness that goes with this as well because it's... Uh, you know, above seven and a half percent alcohol. So right. There's a lot of, and it's also rye based. So the there's a, I'd say about twenty percent rye in the grist bill for this, which makes it real tricky to run off in the mash process technically, but uh, um, gives it kind of a slightly spicier body that mm-hmm. is unique to rye. The the citrus on it is just fantastic, in my opinion, on the nose. It, it really just nails. Uh, and like I said, I'm not I'm not adverse to a, a real high IBU IPA, but this is on the lower end of that, but just absolutely delicious. Um, and, and But the nose really makes it as yeah. it comes in. I mean, that really is the gift that just keeps on giving very much a pineapple citrus kind of... Yeah, uh, a little bit of, of that tro- tropical right. character to it. So. The interesting story about that beer was it was um, made in response to, so the RFA is short for Red Flag Ale. Okay. And Red Flag is, uh, of course, the air combat training exercises at Ileson. It's the one of the big missions at Ileson, which is our Red Flag Alaska, RFA. Right. So it's a play on that. And uh, I was having a beer a couple of years ago with the uh, combat training squadron commander, and he was joking like, hey, when are you guys going to make us a beer? And this beer became that, and the name kind of came with it. So it just happened to be this was the next beer I was doing, and so perfect, I'll name it after these guys. And it's fortunately one of their favorite beers. Absolutely. Okay, so now that beer I told you that you needed to hide the children for, it's a little draft called Osculum Infame, or The Kiss of Shame, a Belgian quad. I'm sure there's a story there, but before we get into tasting, we need to get a little background on what a Belgian quad actually is. Glenn gives us the background on Belgian brewing with the difference between doubles, 
triples, and the quads. Belgians have a rich beer culture and history, so America suffered through Prohibition. There used to be lots of small breweries. Prohibition came, wiped all that out. Belgians never had such foolishness. <laughs> and they've been making beer for a lot longer than America has existed. So uh, consequently, there are uh, America actually has surpassed Belgium recently in the number of breweries and sort of that unique local character. But prior to that, Belgium had little farmhouse breweries. Uh, I think they were nearly 2,000 little breweries for a relatively small country. And they're, you know, one in every little village and farmhouse and backwater, in addition to some bigger ones. So so a lot of different beer styles. Uh, you know, Belgian beer isn't just one type of beer. It's a broad range. So... But a lot of really interesting stuff, like you'd mentioned lambics earlier. That's right. like one like a unique to a specific region in Belgium. Um, certain fruit beers, uh, but the but more Belgians are more known for either the Trappist beers, the Monk beers made in monasteries. Right. But stylistically, there's generally what's called Belgian pale ale, which is a very broad, all-encompassing. Uh, but it's generally a pale straw colored to amber beer that's going to be between five percent and maybe six and a half to seven percent tops alcohol which you know that's a huge amount of you know covers a lot of ground so then you'll get into things like doubles um doubles are slightly higher in alcohol generally from about six and a half to up to about eight and a half to nine percent uh, but also dark, like roasted, right. um, uh, generally doubles. And, it, and the, the single, double, triple doesn't really mean a whole lot in terms of one isn't twice as much as the other or three times as much as the pale. Does it reference the processing, just, just how yeah, they do it? Yeah, it's just kind of how they have categorized their styles. So then we move on to the triples, which are generally 8.5 to about 11% alcohol. And pale colored, you go back to pale. So bigger body, more alcohol, but pale in color. And, of course, Belgian yeast is kind of, you no. Know, a lot of the Belgian ales have that sort of earthy, clovey, banana, fruit, a lot of interesting stuff going on in the yeast, right. and it's specific to the, a lot of the strains of yeast they use. So quads are kind of a off the spectrum above triples. And it's kind of a smaller style, but just bigger alcohol, pale. Okay, did you get all that? I hope you took notes. There'll be a test later. Not really. But now that you have a little bit of the background, let's get the full story on Silver Gulch's famed Belgian quad. And so this next one, Osculum Infame, which means the kiss of shame, which is a... <laughs> you'll is there upset a story? biblical people is, if is, they look at it. Is yeah. there a story there? There is. A former brewer came up with the name, but uh, he had a kind of a twisted sense of humor. But it's something very bad. So <laughs> if what you we're drink enough is... of these, 
<laughs> you may do something very bad. So everything in moderation. In <laughs> it's like, don't let your kids Google it, though. It's not necessarily G-rated or even PG-rated. <laughs> it may be it's NC-17. And this is over 21, right. everyone. So, so this beer, uh, because it's fermented with a Belgian-style yeast, it's got a lot, I mean, a huge nose of clove, banana, yeah. bubble gum. The clove uh, and bubble gum definitely like jump right yeah. out at you. And that's by design. Another uh, big component of this beer, uh, a lot of Belgian ales are typically made with additions of sugar. Uh, typically it's beet sugar and they'll uh, caramelize it to a varying a lesser or more greater degree to get different color contributions. But they use that to kind of augment the sugar concentration to get higher alcohol. Right. So... Um, also, Belgians will, uh, for certain styles of those triples, especially in quads, you can add, uh, this has coriander and orange peel added. Oh, yes. So you'll get orange peel and that spicy coriander note. Boy, I'll tell you what, clove, coriander, or, I mean, you just nailed yeah, every like, bit oh, of it right yeah. there. And, and, uh, the ABV 10 and a half percent. I was just going to say the ABV on this yeah. one has got to be off the scale. 10 and a half percent. Because it is nearly spirit level. I mean, you know, you yeah. kind of get that flavor, that warming on the tongue of, of a good, uh, yeah, you know, this spirit. actually warms your palate, your throat on the way down. It gives you, this is a nice, even though it looks deceptively pale. It looks like a pale ale. I mean, you're like, this is, you know. Is, a winter warmer. It is so complex on the nose and on the tongue. And, I mean, so much work must have gone into just kind of formulating all the different components of this because... Yeah, the the yeast is one of the biggest contributing factors to it. Um, I mean, to a lesser extent, uh, the grist bill in this is uh, Pilsen malt, pre- predominantly Pilsen malt and some oats, flaked oats. Uh, but it's um, just less water, a lot higher gravity uh, work to start with. And then the coriander and orange peel added uh, right in the whirlpool, the last part of the right. brewing process where you can retain more of the aromatic parts of it. Now, I will tell you, if you have a weak heart or very little sense of humor, don't bother to fire up Google for that name translation. Just go find some Osculum Infame wherever you can and enjoy it. I can't believe it, but we're out of time. Thanks to Glenn at Silver Gulch for his hospitality. I'm sure we'll hear more from him on future episodes. I hope you go visit Silver Gulch next time you're in Fairbanks. I'm Michael Dukes, Michael at FinerThingsRadio.com, and I hope you'll come back next week as we change gears and talk about distilling with Ursa Major Distillery. It's guaranteed to be a time that we can get together, grab a glass of our favorite something, and have that conversation about the finer things. This program was produced with the help of consulting producers Amanda Burns and Jerry Burns. Finer Things is a production of the Creative Department Incorporated, all rights reserved. Find out more at finerthingsradio.com.